I speak to you in the name of the living God, blessed Trinity, and lover of your souls. Amen. Comedians Mike Myers and Dana Carvey's Saturday Night Live sketch and subsequent film Wayne's World singularly influenced the 1992 word of the year. Not. If this is unfamiliar to you, let's get you savvy to the 90s shtick. A declarative statement is made followed by a pause and then an emphatic not. Adverb is thus postfixed to emphatically negate the previous statement. Now I know Trinity Cathedral's artistic taste is far too refined for its congregation to know anything about Wayne's world. <laughs> the movie's characters, Wayne and Garth, are 20-somethings living in Wayne's parents' basement. The duo embodies the 90s slacker stereotype of Generation X. This is the generation that felt they could not live up to the expectations of their model boomer parents. And that's why I think Wayne and Garth would have found Paul's epistle this morning excellent because <laughs> Paul wrote, God chose things that are not to reduce to nothing things that are. Consider your own call, brothers Wayne and Garth, Neither of you were wise by human standards. Neither were powerful, neither of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not to reduce to nothing, things that are. The boomers knew financial security, Gen Xers did not. Boomers were loyal to institution, Gen Xers were not. Boomers were optimists, Gen Xers were not. You get the picture. So if you were born between 1965 and 1980, your generation fits this stereotype. You lost faith in the social world. Your parents' expectations were trashed and you were left with a big fat knot looming over your future. Paul, Sounds a bit like a Gen Xer today in his reading in the gospel or in, in the reading from 1 Corinthians. You can picture him donning a brightly colored plaid shirt, hanging out in his parents' basement, writing 1 Corinthians on the electric guitar. You think you know wisdom? You think you're discerning? Well, you're not. God flipped all those beliefs upside down a long time ago, dude. Paul's letter opens with a massive generational shift for the baby church in Corinth, where wisdom was seen as supreme. Wisdom was supreme. So it must have been jarring for the Corinthians to hear that they needed to shift away from the old beliefs about wisdom that they had, because human wisdom can't discern God's wisdom. That had to be confusing and depressing because that's what we feel when we realize the one thing we live by isn't going to work for us anymore. We call that disillusionment. And it's similar to disappointment, but can be much more severe and traumatic because disillusionment occurs when we lose a belief central 
to our identities. In Corinthians, Paul treats wisdom, the Greek's great Sophia, like yesterday's fad. He's fingering the self-help books in her library, scorning the church's trust in her words. Show me the one who's wise, he taunts, as he reads the titles of her bestsellers this year aloud. All I really need to know I learned in kindergarten. The power of positive thinking. Awaken the giant within. Girl, wash your face. Men are from Mars. Women are from Venus. Blink. The power of thinking without thinking. The year of yes. And my favorite, who moved my cheese? Paul places all the Corinthians pop culture books back on the shelf. Sorry, I lost my place. (laughs) He shakes his head. He reassures the church that this is the wisdom of the world. And this is the wisdom that Isaiah, the prophet, said is going bye-bye. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discerning of the discerned I will thwart, he quotes. Where is the debater of this age who will contend with God's wisdom, he asks them. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world by this one thing, the cross of Jesus Christ? The world's wisdom tells you the cross is foolishness, but you're being saved by it. So how do you reconcile that? The cross is foolishness. I'm reminded of this every time I lead a new inquirer's class at Trinity. Regardless of the makeup of the group, when we get to talking about the creedal statements about Jesus' death, resurrection, ascension, there's a long pause, a collective brain kink. We behold Jesus' death and resurrection in wonder and curiosity and puzzlement because we know something about it is strange. It doesn't line up with conventional wisdom. And we know from history that crucifixion, that death by cross, was the biblical generation's primary symbol of social foolishness. Only political folly got you up there on a cross. It was the Roman government's punishment of choice because dissidents to the empire could be displayed, shamed publicly to dissuade future malcontents from perpetrating similar crimes. Death by cross was for fools. And yet Paul says Jesus' death on the cross is the wisdom of God. So there's a collective shoulder shrug when we talk about the cross in the inquirer's class. Sometimes rigorous theological debate follows. But in the end, someone always says something like, well, isn't what happened with Jesus' death and resurrection mostly about faith? And our conjectures stop, not because faith is news to anyone, but because deep down, each person in the room knows that we could sit all night reasoning with the wisdom of the world, spinning our arguments in circles, but we know the wisdom of the world does not know God. And that ultimately, our identities are not shaped by the world's wisdom. Sophia does not reign supreme in the Christian heart, she takes a back seat to Jesus. And as a church, you and I might be comfortable with this idea 
because we've repeated for hundreds of years these creedal statements in worship. But it's not easy for everyone. And for the first Christians, this concept was all new. This disillusion with the world's wisdom, it can be scary. Imagine with me for a moment a time in your own life when you felt disillusioned. When what you relied upon to thrive in work, family, your social life was completely upended. When a belief central to your identity was stripped away from you. Was it a job, a romance, a relationship, an investment that left you reeling? When we are disillusioned, our assumptions are discredited. Our deeply held convictions are doubted. What we thought would be will not be. Disillusionment wades us into the emotional waters of loss, confusion, disconnection. We struggle to maintain meaning. We find ourselves in an undefined stasis of existential angst because we know we are powerless to change reality. Now, regardless of what year you were born in, we are all a part of the pandemic generation. We don't need statistics to tell us what disillusionment is, but we've got some anyway. Healthcare workers left the profession to become Uber drivers because the demands of care were so staggering. Teachers quit what they loved they quit education in droves faced with unmeetable expectations. Extraordinary people were faced with extreme situations and could no longer get their needs met by institutions according to their personal values. So disillusionment set in, and our economy is still reeling. The statistics are similar for marriages. Since 2019, there's been a 34% increase in divorce agreements. And have you seen the housing market? Pandemic disillusionment brought our culture to its knees. We've experienced loss of meaning, loss of purpose, loss of relationship. The Corinthians' disillusion over conventional wisdom isn't just about the Corinthians. It's about us, too. Every generation faces disillusionment with what the former generation took for granted. The great psychoanalyst Carl Jung writes, a life of ease and security convinces everyone of all material joys. But it's never produced spirit. Probably only suffering, disillusion, and self-denial do that. Young's use of the word spirit taps us out of the realm of this conventional wisdom and into the realm of God's wisdom. He's pointing us to how God uses disillusionment for our good. Disillusionment isn't just a byproduct or a, a backhanded slap from the universe. Disillusionment isn't just suffering for suffering's sake. Disillusionment is for something. It produces spirit. Because to be disillusioned is to finally be separated 
from an illusion. Something that wasn't real in the first place. To be disillusioned is to remove the falsehood that you've clung to and to make room for the spirit of truth. The world's wisdom will always blow away with the winds of time, so Paul writes a timeless letter to the church to give us something true to cling to generation after generation, and he does not reach for the latest self-help book to gift us. He reaches for the cross. That enduring tree whose eternal roots draw from the wellspring of God's infinite love. Jesus Christ, Paul tells us, is God's true wisdom made manifest on the cross to liberate humankind from the false wisdoms of this world. That shoulder twitch that shows up each time someone in the inquirer's class is questioned about Jesus' death is a twitch from an itch caused by the tickling of another world. It reminds us that Jesus is strange. The cross is unusual. This whole church thing is like nothing we've ever had to understand or explain before because it's not of this world. Consider how you came to be here in church today or what brought you to Trinity for the first time. Was it human wisdom that brought you here? Was it powerful political presence or your birthright? Was it something foolish, shameful even? Something that made you feel weak and disempowered to the point where some of you felt reduced to nothing, powerless. Whatever that situation was or is, whatever brings you to your knees before the crown of thorns, that is the disillusionment that produces spirit. When we finally face the illusions in our lives, when we look them straight in the eye, and we grieve the loss of what we thought was real, and we come to God seeking life in reality, that's what leads us to the wisdom of God, a wisdom that truly delivers and heals, renews, and saves. This is good news, my friends. Because it means that if you find yourself disillusioned today, you are one step away from spirit. Your, if your life has felt like one reorientation after another, a perpetual breaking down of who you once were, formation into someone new, again and again, over and over, know that each disillusionment is moving you away from this world's wisdom and closer to the real and true eternal wisdom of God. That's the good news. The bad news is it's going to continue to be weird. <laughs> this reorientation, this, it's strange every time. Because in this world, God's wisdom looks like foolishness. Maturity looks like childlikeness. Strength looks weak. Honor looks like shame, like a fool hanging on a cross. But that man who hangs there told us that it would be this way if we followed him. 
The very first time he stood in a pulpit, Jesus promised that when the blind see and the prisoners are free and everything begins to get a little wonky, that's when you know God is with you. Jesus told anyone who would listen to him on the mountain and on the plain that the poor are rich, the grieving are comforted, the blessed are reviled. He said that when others lie about you, that's when you're living in truth. The most untalented, unassuming, meek people of this world are the true leaders and will be put in charge of everything in the world to come. What you know of this world's wisdom will one day mean nothing. So when the signposts on your journey keep reversing, when what you once knew looks like it's opposite, that's when you know your reward in the kingdom of heaven is near. So let the disillusionment come, my friends. Let it make a fool of your life. Because one day, that fool on the cross will be our king. <laughs>